This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, we head to the Rhode Island School of Design, plus a recap of Design Miami with Monocle's US editor, Chris Lord. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. It's fair to say that the idea of design thinking has spread well beyond the design world. And few places reflect that shift as much as the Rhode Island School of Design. Its president, Crystal Williams, is not only the first black woman to lead the renowned school, but she's not a designer in the traditional, more practical sense. Crystal comes from the world of literature and poetry, and she leads an institution that in recent years has focused on tackling some of the world's thorniest problems – from sustainability and climate change to nuclear disarmament and the opioid crisis, all the while redefining what it means to be a designer. To learn more, Monocle's Chris Chermack went to the Rhode Island School of Design for a visit. This this wonderful resource that we have, but we feel like a vital organ at the the university. It's definitely, as you can see, this is not the type of room that you'd walk into at really any undergraduate university, but especially in art and design school. So I could tell you, uh, what I'll do is I'll walk you through our three main spaces. Biologist Benedict Gagliardi is the collections manager of the Edna Lawrence Nature Lab at the Rhode Island School of Design. He takes me on a tour of the space filled with plants and animals, both alive, stuffed and fossilized. I actually watch people's faces when they come in and and there's this look of awe and absolute overwhelm. And it's kind of a beautiful thing because to feel that overwhelm at biodiversity, form and pattern and, and structure and function, and also kind of solutions. The lab began as a place for nature drawing classes, which many of the students are still doing as we walk around. But it's also since shifted into the world of biodesign, learning from animals and plants and nature. Unlike a natural history museum, many of the objects can be handled and removed from their cases. Gagliardi gives me a number of examples of biodesign on display as we're walking through. From the salamander... They have these wild regenerative capabilities of their muscle and tissue and bone. ...to the kingfisher that famously inspired the Japanese Shinkansen bullet train to solve the problem of sonic booms. The head engineer was a birder. He contemplated how birds like kingfishers dive from air to water without making a splash. That would kind of be the proxy for that sonic boom. So they redesigned the train along that principle and with other aspects of other birds. To a particularly beautiful butterfly case that highlights the possibilities of color. The blues, and if you look in this box, all those things, those are called, generally called rainbow weevils. They're absolutely fabulous. They're these rainbow patterns and shimmering designs that look hand-painted. All that design and pattern will remain forever because it's being created by a structural interaction with light. So you can imagine, like, what if we produced a paint that never faded or produced objects that already had color built in that you didn't have to paint every couple of years to keep them looking nice. The school's work in biodesign and its broader applications has also attracted the interest of a number of companies, starting with South Korean car maker Hyundai, who are looking to make a more wholesale change in how they operate and what they can learn about car manufacturing from nature. When it first came up, our former director was like, so 
the car company Hyundai wants to collaborate with the Nature Lab, and we actually kind of chuckled out loud. We're like, why? <laughs> what are we doing that they would want to collaborate with? They wanted to be more green, more sustainable, but they wanted to change the culture of their company and how they design. Like all the little aspects that you don't think of changing. It's hard to change the the way people in a group have gone about the simplest brainstorming and, and prototyping and stuff. But is that kind of thing that time here and the overall mission of the Nature Lab dovetails very well. And it's just exciting to p- take people out into the woods and show them bugs and, and say, you don't have to love it, but appreciate it. Think about it. And Hyundai is just the start. Crystal Williams, president of the Rhode Island School of Design, or RISD as it's known, says she finds businesses today are increasingly eager to work with RISD to apply design thinking to their own problems, even if they don't always know exactly what that means. You know, people using design in the business world. Oh, we need to, like, our C-suite isn't working. We need design thinking. And really, what I think for a lot of people, it, what they're gaining is not actually design thinking, right? It's just how to have a different kind of meeting. And that's not what we do, right? What we do is ask different kind of questions, behave differently with each other, press, iterate, press, iterate, question, then question the question, then press and iterate again. That's not a different kind of meeting. That's a different way of being. So what exactly is a designer or a design mindset? Crystal Williams is the first African-American woman to head RISD. She came from a world outside of design, from arts and literature. And since taking over the institution, Crystal Williams says she sort of married these two worlds in her mind. The practical side of design with the theoretical, or aspirational, of the arts. Prior to coming, I would have said, artists and designers enable humanity and empower and enrich our lives. And I would have been thinking about our souls and our spirits, <laughs> right? As a poet, sort of, that's the <laughs> space that I sort of come from. And now I think about our souls, our spirits, our everyday lives at 7 o'clock in the morning, at 7 p.m. in the evening, our cars, our buildings. I, you know, I'm thinking about the much more quotidian aspects of our lives that artists and designers touch. Does, mm-hmm. does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And our lives would just be very different. I think about it that way every day in the morning. I get up and I just think, I like my sheets. Thank you, textile designers. (laughs) It's interesting that you put it that way, I think, in part because I would argue that a lot of people kind of think more of that first when they think of designers. They think of making things, you know, designing specific objects. They think less about the soul, feeding the soul, the way you described the way you first came to this job. So last year, I think it was, at the MFA show, I was walking around and I just was immediately enthralled with these glass lamps, these beautiful little, they're almost like Susian. They're they're sort of playful and joyful glass things, you know. And I was talking to the graduate student, the MFA student who made them, and I asked her, which is a question I ask every artist, what are you attempting to do? And she said, I'm attempting to inspire delightfulness, right? So she's doing that through a lamp. But when I talk to RISD students, 
the primary answer I get from them has to do with the soul of the spirit, has to do with being of service, right? And being of service to the human endeavor, which is why I say we enable, empower, and enrich, right? The human project. And so it's one of the things that causes me to feel so deeply aligned with the place and with the people in the place. Because the people in the place are about being in community with and for other people, and also the planet, frankly. When we query our students, most of them are deeply committed to sustainability, sustainable efforts, et cetera. And they, the way that mets out over the course of their work, it continues to blow me away. This idea that designers see themselves as thinkers and problem solvers, well beyond the world of design itself, is something RISD has been confronting directly. This year, it was one of four schools around the world to join the Terracarta Design Lab, a competition launched by King Charles in the UK to propose global sustainability solutions. You can see the results of that next year. And then there's RISD's Center for Complexity, whose job it is to tackle some of the world's thorniest problems based on the principles of design thinking. Today's schedule is simultaneously high speed and relaxed, right? And so the way that we're running this is each student or student team gets 15 minutes to present their work and get feedback. When I visited RISD, I attended a midterm update of the Center for Complexity, where students were presenting the first updates on their projects. One student proposes mapping indigenous people around the globe. Another pair of students want to bring order to the world of artificial intelligence. And a third is struggling with the very idea of knowledge. She presents a set of little boxes that her reviewers suggest could be the genesis of a new method of education. The whole thing feels more like philosophy than a design class. Justin Cook, the center's founding director, says that's on purpose. The students yesterday, they're working in philosophical terms, for sure. And it's hard for them because they're also designers and they want to make things. But I think that's where it's really exciting. Over the past year, it's taken on everything from the opioid crisis to nuclear disarmament, to quite literally creating a planetary manual to solve the world's problems. Cook says the idea is to identify what he calls epistemological errors in our thinking and to propose radical solutions that, as he puts it, lie on a sort of continuum between the conceptual and the technical in all sorts of disciplines, whether considered traditionally design or not. I mean, the first thing is to recognize that while we may not use the, the term design, any kind of product of human intention is an act of design, right? So like the Constitution of the U.S. isn't act of designing a government. It takes written form, though there are some interesting diagrams, which are familiar tools. But it is, that was a design exercise, and there are what we would call design principles of American democracy that undergird that document, like separation of powers. So these are public policy, constitutions, institutions, these are things that are, in fact, designed. So I don't think this activity is new. I think what's new is that we're trying to train people specifically in the act of design and its application toward these, let's say, non-material outcomes, like public policy, like institutions. This expansion of the concept of design and how its principles apply to all manners of problems in the world 
is really at the heart of what's changed over the last few years, both at RISD and really in society more broadly. Here's RISD President Crystal Williams again. But I started off by saying so much of the work that we do as artists and designers is really invisible, and so that to me is an opportunity and an imperative. As president of this place, as someone who wants to amplify right, artists and designers and the work that we do in the world so that these folks come through here and they go out into the world and they can be successful and bring the fullness of their thinking and their talents to bear on our collective problems. Someone who's actually feels very responsible for helping to, I don't know, enable that. I, this is, a, it's a, it's an imperative. I mean, we, I'm so thankful to be talking to you, right? Because it, every time I get a chance to talk about the importance of what it is we do, is another chance for somebody to hear the essentialness of design. For Monocle, in Providence, Rhode Island, I'm Chris Chermack. That was Chris Chermack on a visit to the Rhode Island School of Design. You can read the Centre for Complexity's draft design manual online at polyscene.design. We're rounding out the show today by talking to Monocle's US editor, Chris Lord, who has just got back from the collectible design fair, Design Miami. Chris, how are you feeling after quite a hectic week, I imagine? Yeah, it was a great week in Miami. I mean, as always, that is a high-octane, high-partying week where, let's not forget, you know, it's Design Miami, but it's also Art Basel, Miami Beach. You also have a multitude of side events and, you know, things opening, museums, of which there are many for design and art across Miami. They kind of all kick into gear. So it's just, you know, it's a bit of a race to try and see as much as you can and to start sort of meet as many people as you can. Yes, and, and I know you were visiting the booth at the Temporary Trade Hall and, and visiting a host of installations, uh, which is amazing. I know also from speaking with you off air that you chatted to everyone from established gallerists to Design Miami's new chairman, Jesse Lee, but you also spoke to designers too. I know you caught up with Nefemi Marcus-Bello, who won the Monocle Design Award earlier this year. Tell me a little bit about your chat with him. Yeah, so Nefemi is a Nigerian designer and artist. Artists. And he was shown with a gallery from LA called Marta, who were exhibiting in Design Miami for the first time. And what he was presenting really, first of all, it's, it's sandcast aluminium. That's what he works in. And the origins of how that came to be is that he got to know these guys in Lagos who were meticulously recreating pieces for cars using this method of sandcast aluminium. And it's this incredible material which is like super light it's got this kind of texture to it that you know obviously the origins are for building bits for cars that you can then use to run a car again so it's like got this sort of technical feel to it in a certain way and yet there's this kind of very tactile thing that Nefemi uses in his work and I asked him to just explain and talk me through a little bit uh, the actual method of sandcasting creating a mold within sand and then melting down aluminium. In some instances, alloys to create brass as well, to create brass products. But in this case, of course, aluminium. The reason why I kind of gravitated towards aluminium is because it's a humble material. And it's one that kind of resonates with me because now that I live in Lagos, it's a material I see everywhere. Globalization in the northern part of the world is maybe the reason for aluminium being so prominent in uh, the global south. The idea is to kind of spark a dialogue and let people know 
how their own consumption is affecting the global south and my city Lagos. We stood next to uh, almost like a, a circular screen, if you will. That could be how it is, but it is also a piece of art as well. What brings all this together here? They are objects to be lived with, aren't they? Yes, they are. The premise of this now and the inspiration behind it is actually a TV series that I grew up watching called Tales by Moonlight on uh, the NTA channel in, in Lagos and in Nigeria as a whole. And it would be an older woman telling stories, folktale stories to kids around a tree setting and they'd be sitting around the woman. So the idea was to kind of create this typology to kind of pay homage to that. And for me, design should also have an emotional connectivity to people as well. Nefemi, you got approached by Design Miami to do something very interesting here where you've got a piece right at the entrance to the fair. They're really putting you front and center. What will everybody see as they walk through into the fair this, this week? So they're going to see an abstract form of a boat. It's stainless steel polished and this was actually heavily inspired by undocumented emigrants who are taking the journey from North Africa through the um, Mediterranean to Europe um, trying to find of course better opportunities and I wanted to kind of make sure that that was something that was spoken about especially Miami that has a history of immigration as well. That was Nefemi Marcus-Bello. Now, Chris, I want to change gears from designers to talk about the gallerists showing work. Who were your favourites? The standout, as always, is Argo Projects from Mexico City. Amazing gallery, a little bit closer to where I am. Megan H. Gallery from New York. They had works by um, Hervé Bailey, who is a French architect from the 20th century, who really was forgotten as a furniture designer who until they really rescued him from obscurity. Amazing work, just sort of hummed on the booth and instantly so many people, you know, you sort of saw people gathering around their space. Lots of Brazilian modernism. Gallery Fumi had a very nice presentation from London. I actually sat down briefly with Laura Young, who runs the Future Perfect, a gallery in Los Angeles. And she talked me through this amazing sort of installation they'd made using a USM cabinet. We asked our artist Carl Zahn, who makes these beautiful stratus chandeliers, which are inspired by the clouds, to create an infinity room with inside of the USM. So the USM adorned the cabinets with mirror, and then Carl has four light fixtures hanging throughout it. The four fixtures represent the four seasons. The fixtures themselves, being named stratus, are meant to emulate clouds, which obviously connects to everything else. The lights themselves have almost a constellation of pattern on them. I'm so proud of the body of work. And then around the outside of the room, we have over 150 objects from all of our artists, including Jane Dehane, uh, Ronaldo Sanguino, Benanesia Blanc, John Hogan, Ian Collings. And when you talk to Carl about creating this, what did you say to him about what works in Miami? What, what is it you want to bring to this fair? Ultimately, with what I wanted to do with Carl is I wanted to create an immersive experience. I wanted him to work in a space where he took things floor to ceiling and really allowed people to like experience his work on a, in a level that makes them want to take it with them, you know, immerse themselves in it forever. Who doesn't want to hang out in a cloud all day? 
That was Laura Young from Megan H Gallery. So Chris, we've, we've talked to designers, gallerists, but now I want to talk brands. There are some huge household names at the showcase, building incredible installations in partnership with amazing designers. So, I mean, this is all kind of working in an ecosystem. I know you visited the Cola setup, which was created in collaboration with UK designer Samuel Ross. Fill us in on that. Cola is a very old US brand with a lot of history, family owned, makes sanctuary, taps, water, faucets, the whole lot. You know, it, it's a very important US manufacturer with a lot of heritage of of innovation. And they have in recent years carved out this amazing portfolio, I guess, of collaborations with contemporary designers who come in and look at what they're doing and bring something fresh to the table. And Samuel Ross has really done that. He's created what they call an avant-garde faucet. You know, it's a really unusual piece of design, this angular tap that goes off in all directions before the water emerges from the end in in bright orange in the example they were showing at Design Miami uh, last week. An amazing piece of design. And Samuel Ross, you know, rising star. And it shows the caliber of brand collaborations there. I wanted to understand what he was trying to do with this tap. And actually, it's thoughtful. And he explains here a little bit about the process of how he came to this unusual shape for the tap. And what I've really tried to do here is to not go into a partnership with a predetermined prospect of what the tap should be determined to be for this generation. And part of that has been about going back to the traditional way of thinking and expressing, and that being draftsmanship, you know, moving between Indian inks and charcoal and, and, and clay and soft pencils through quite a gestural nature to find fundamentally what feels interesting without overdetermining the form. So the avant-garde prospect came about for actually returning to draftsmanship and returning to the arts. And I, I definitely think there is some lateral thinking between you know, my most recent show at White Cube Bermondsey and the focus on abstraction and some of the drawings shown with Friedman Bender in their New York Chelsea gallery in May and the way in which you're seeing the avant-garde form here take shape. This is the antithesis of you know, AI. It's really about returning to the skill of draftsmanship and the trust and brevity of the human mind and the human hand. You've got this incredible material, very lightweight. We have developed a new recycled epoxy polymer titled Neonite across the tenure of this chapter one of the first partnership with Cola. It offers far more pliability when it comes to casting. So that has enabled alongside the material itself to be a patent that we've applied for, the actual water flow is also being patented. I think it's this shared interest. On one side it is, you know, aesthetic and it's optimistic. There is also this love of industrial process. And if there's an opportunity to truly put some type of marker in the ground surrounding patenting, surrounding, you know, the advancement in materiality, I want to do that too. Samuel, finally, we're encountering each other here in Miami on the east coast of America. Tell me, is this a faucet or a tap? (laughs) I'm going to go with tap. (laughs) We're here for taps. That was Samuel Ross at the Cola installation at Design Miami. Chris, to wrap this up, let's talk Alcova. Now, for those in the know, Alcova is a showcase that typically takes place during Milan's Salone del Mobile design event. And it's all about showcasing emerging designers in distinct or or unique settings. But now the concept has been taken to Miami. It's been rolled out there. It's first time overseas. Tell us a little bit about Alcova in Miami. 
Yeah, so Alcova will be familiar to anybody who's been to Salone. They've been there for many years. It's a sort of side satellite event, you know, at the time of the fair. It's, you know, famously an incredible gathering space for new design with some really thoughtful, interesting talent. And they've done exactly that when they brought it to Miami. Usually Alcova takes over these very spirited, interesting spaces around Milan, usually tapping into the industrial design heritage of the place. When they came to Miami, they took over this 50s motel that was a pretty old school, evocative space with a pool in the middle and a, a little bit, you know, showing its age. But they did something really interesting, I thought. And they got together a large group of designers coming from Europe, but also from America as well. Yeah, I mean, there's some standout talent. I know that a, f- a few of my personal favourites were there. Also, Rich Aber, who made lamps, vases, and, and benches cast in rubber. There was also the Californian design company Kalon. I mean, it all sounds super, super interesting in terms of, of the work that's on show. It was super interesting work. But I sat down with the two founders of Alcova, Valentina Kufi and uh, uh, Joseph Grima. And Joseph first explained to me a little bit about the thought that underpinned the show this year. Here in Miami, there is another tradition, a tradition of design more connected to the art scene, unquestionably, in the sense that it's more sort of uh, collectible-oriented. I think it's undeniable that there is also a certain sort of commercial dimension to this, of people looking for great furniture for their home that also has an artistic edge to it. And again, similarly to what we were trying to do in Milan, we think that here... There is space for design that um, is a little bit more um, perhaps research-oriented, that asks questions about what design is today, and that we may be able to pique the interest of the many hundreds of thousands of people who travel out here, similarly to Salon and Mobile. We don't want to build a destination ourselves. We want to simply introduce into an existing destination a dimension that is not currently represented. Valkova famously works in these incredible spaces that you find in around Milan. Now, I think for me, it's amazing to walk into an old motel that you've took over. It couldn't be more Miami, even though for a lot of people, this isn't the image of Miami anymore. For me, this is the most fascinating part of Miami. Even if coming to the fair over years, I happen to go to very little exhibition or non-exhibition done in such a space. So the first time I, I started meeting this architecture, I realized this was my image of America. I think for design, the architecture is very important. So I very much prefer to be in a charming architecture from the 50s than in a prefabricated venue or something. And you've built this incredible gathering of people that you've brought together here as you always do in Milan but here I think it feels very special I wonder Valentina talk me through a few highlights here a few things that if people want to be surprised about what they might get out of a trip to Miami in these weeks ahead what they should look out for One very beautiful thing is that we have our family here, our family of, I mean, our team, but all the designers we were, or many of the designers we were starting with. For example, Lucas Bergbert is with us since 2018, and and so is Costas Lambridinis, object of common interest. They are people that believe in what we are doing, and this is a brave move, because we don't understand fully the scene of Miami, but we have all these people that came 
for us and with us. Then we have discoveries. More American designers reach uh, a bar. It's, for example, a very good one is actually opening our show. And we did his exhibition before, but he made an incredible room. And there is uh, a group for, from LA called Uncharted, and they created the most... <laughs> Uh, incredible room transforming the space in a unique way and, and I think it's more comfortable for them to join us in Miami than uh, doing it in Milan. That was Valentina Chufi and Joseph Grima. I feel like we've got a really good sense of Miami, Chris, but I want to ask, I guess just finally, you know, a lot of this design that's on show is super expensive. For those of us who maybe don't have the budget, why should we go to Miami for next year's event and why should we care about it? I think it's the most important crossroads for design in America right now as an event, because I think there's the, the acquisition of the fair is going to bring a lot of energy that was untapped, actually, I think, you know, 19 editions of that fair. It's really taken a while, I think, to, you know, design in those kind of, you know, sort of settings takes a long time to mature and to work out what it's going to be and what it can bring to a global scene. And I really feel this year there was a sense that Miami is a sort of essential place. I do wonder now Design Miami has got this new energy in the room, whether we might see new outposts of it in the very near future. And I wonder, and that will not be in Miami, that will be elsewhere. Of course, that will, Miami will remain its, its home, but I suspect you will hear a lot more of it. But I think that does continue to fly the flag for the city uh, globally as a place where designers and collectors meet and do business, frankly. Chris Lord, thank you very much uh, for wrapping Design Miami with us. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Maylee Evans. She edited the show with assistance from Steph Chungu. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs> 